ask what you can do. That's the Harvard Kennedy School motto, emblazoned on banners and podiums and business cards all across campus. It traces back to the challenge John F. Kennedy once put to both Americans and the people of the world to look beyond ourselves and consider the ways in which each of us can make a difference. It's both a romantic vision of how we can make the world a better place, as well as a dare to relinquish our cynicism and work to turn that dream into reality. The thing is, it's one thing to ask the question, and quite another to come up with an answer. It's easy to think about the ways we can give back within the confines of our daily lives, like volunteering at a soup kitchen or picking up trash on the street. But when it comes to big life decisions, it can feel like there's an unfair choice involved. You can either choose to commit yourself to the betterment of humanity or seek personal reward instead. Of course, you might not be surprised to learn that today we're going to call that dichotomy into question. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by Harvard University's 28th president, Drew Gilpin Faust. President Faust, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, while your principal duties these days involve running the university, uh, by trade, you are first and foremost an historian. That's right. Um, uh, what, what attracted you to the study of history, and when did you come to realize that pursuing scholarship was the way you wanted to live your life? Well, history was always so much a part of my life when I was growing up. I um, grew up in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia in the 1950s and 60s. And that was part of two histories that were very vivid in my childhood experience. The first was the whole history of the Civil War, which was fought on the very ground on which um, I did grow up and on which my family's farm was located. And we were very aware of living on the Lee Jackson Highway and of um, being on land where Jeb Stewart and others had raced back and forth. I uh, also grew up at the time of the Civil War centennial, and so often our family activities would include things like visiting a battlefield or going to a reenactment. Mm -hmm. And so the presence of the past was very much a part of my childhood. And then it became a part of my experience in another way, which was the beginnings of the civil rights movement made both that past and its legacies for the 20th century present very vivid. The um, senator from Virginia, Harry Byrd, who responded to the Brown v. Board decision by declaring that rather than integrate, um, schools in Virginia should close, uh, was someone whose voice was very powerful in, in Virginia and particularly in Clark County where he lived and I lived, so that I was very aware of, aware of these issues of race and justice and their origins in a, in a history that had been fought out on the very land that was part of my experience. So mm -hmm. history was not something distant or abstract for me, but something that had an impact on the present and something that always intrigued me. Well, in addition to studying history, you certainly have been a part of history and in certain, some ways made history. Uh, you mentioned the civil rights movement. Uh, earlier this year, I had the great privilege of going down to the 50th anniversary of the March on Montgomery in Selma, Alabama. Um, I understand you were there as well, not just at the celebration, but you were there when it happened 50 I was, years ago. I was. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience? What inspired you 
to to go down there? Well, as a small child, I developed a very um, clear sense, and I still wonder somehow how that clarity emerged, but a clear sense that the way black people were treated, and we called them colored people in those days, the ways they were treated by white society were unconscionable and inconsistent with what I was being taught as a uh, student in school about American values and what America stood for, and inconsistent as well with the kinds of things I heard in Sunday school at my local Episcopal church. And so I was first puzzled and then outraged by those inconsistencies. And so those questions mattered a great deal to me from the time I was eight, nine years old. When I got to high school, I was able to learn more about the background, more about the realities. And by the time I got to college, I had spent a summer, summer of 1964, working with a Quaker group in the South and was very committed to the civil rights issues that I had seen on the ground in places like Prince Edward County, Virginia, Orangeburg, South Carolina, Birmingham, Alabama. And so as, um, and that summer was the summer of the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was seen by many activists as a, a, a partial step that needed to be followed by a voting rights um, act. And so as individuals were protesting for the Voting Rights Act at Selma, and as I watched the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and saw before my very eyes the brutality and horror of John Lewis and others being beaten, I was one of a number of Americans who felt, I need to be there. I need to say, this is not America. And so I skipped my freshman year midterm exams. And with not my, something you would suggest current undergrads do? No, no, no okay. not, not a, a good <laughs> career move. Um, and went with my boyfriend and drove in a car to Selma. We alternated 100-mile stints and drove all the way to Selma Mm -hmm. and participated in the um, first day of the march. Now, the way the march was organized after the first day, the judge who had said that the march could take place said, the first day, anybody can march. After that, the highway's quite narrow and only 300 people could march. Mm -hmm. So we were not going to be permitted to march the following days. And so I only participated in the first day. Mm -hmm. But it was a life-changing experience. When we left Philadelphia, where I was in college, we didn't know if Johnson was going to call out the National Guard or not. And it would have been a very different experience had he not decided to do so. At some point, we heard on the radio en route that he was going to do that, and that therefore there would be some protection for the marchers. Until that point, there really it had been defined <clears throat> by the brutality that you had just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't dissuade you from going. You still felt it was necessary to take part in it. I did. I did. Uh, once again, perhaps the moral clarity of of youth that I felt I could not face myself if I did not step up and say, I believe in this and I will risk myself for this. Mm -hmm. I alluded before to you making history. Of course, you are the first uh, woman to become president of Harvard University. Most people who reach leadership positions start off somewhere, maybe not in Selma, but at the street level where they become really passionate about something, they become an activist or they become uh, involved in some kind of public service, giving back to their community. Um, The thing is, is that 
across that span, uh, you end up on different sides of that divide. Uh, certainly as president of the university, you've um, been had, had to um, deal with uh, protests on certain issues. Do you ever think back about uh, your experience as an activist and what you were looking for from the leaders at the time? And uh, does that influence how you respond to those kinds of very much so, very much so. I think about um, what motivates students. I admire the fact that they care about something larger than themselves. And particularly in this era where so much of what youth, young people are being told is pick a vocation, make as much money as you can, don't ever risk anything that would harm your career. The fact that there are students who say, I'm in college and, and I'm here to learn, but I'm also here to build a life that's bigger than simply a job or an ambition that's constrained to a financial outcome or my own self-satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And so I have admiration for the students. I think I understand some, just because I've read about it and experienced it, some tactics and strategies. And so I um, often think, ooh, they could be doing a better job in this domain, or how about, about this? Are you about anything in particular? Or? <laughs> I don't think I'll get specific. <laughs> okay. um, but I care a lot about many of the issues that these students are protesting. Mm -hmm. And so um, there is a certain um, two-sided view that I can have. I, I have to think about this institution and what its appropriate role is, mm -hmm. but I also think about the goals often that the students mm -hmm. are seeking to accomplish. I'm, I'm sure we're speaking kind of in general terms, but obviously uh, in the last year, uh, global climate change mm -hmm. has been a big mm -hmm. issue. It, it, it's comparable in many ways to civil rights in your generation. Mm -hmm. Lots of issues to choose from that are perfectly uh, uh, val valid as mm -hmm. uh, putting your times towards, um, but uh, for this generation, global climate change is a big sure, deal. Huge deal. Um, but certainly there are many ways to attack it. Do you think in terms of, so what do you think in terms of tactics? What would you do if you were a student in this era and you wanted to uh, take on that, that issue? Well, global climate change is obviously one of, if not the most pressing issues of our time. And um, reversing it, limiting it is critical for the future of humankind and the planet how best to do that and what role can universities most usefully play. Mm -hmm. I think we can play very important roles in a variety of realms. One is through the kinds of research and discovery that lead to solutions to the challenges. And those come on multiple levels. One, the scientific solutions, carb <coughs> excuse me, carbon capture or other kinds of scientific advances, batteries that can store solar power for longer periods of time, those kinds of activities, many of which are taking place across the campus. But then another set of research and, and um, academic work here in the policy realm, here at the Kennedy School, there are a number of people, Rob Stevens among them, working on how to advance global climate agreements, mm -hmm. how to use the international order to, and of course it is not any one country's problem, we all breathe the same atmosphere and air, right. how can we work together to agree to join hands to combat this? Mm -hmm. So those are very important as we anticipate the meetings in Paris this fall, the contributions made by individuals who are working on those problems have been and will be enormous. And then for example, we have in the law school, people working on regulatory mechanisms, 
Um, many of Obama's interventions in the last months about climate have come out of advice and research done by lawyers in our law, law school and mm -hmm. elsewhere, so that's important. Mm -hmm. And then if we think about um, the school of public health and the medical school, the kinds of mitigation uh, uh, and a public health dimension of what air pollution means, what rising heat means for populations. So, so many areas in which mm -hmm. we can make substantive contributions that will, I believe, enable us to move as a society more generally towards uh, combating climate change. Mm -hmm. And then very closely related, but a little bit different, is educating the leaders, both at the graduate and the undergraduate level, who can continue to um, push for progress in the variety of realms that I've mentioned. I think those are extraordinarily important mm -hmm. um, contributions that universities must make. As you no doubt know, I don't think that our investment strategies are the place for universities' uh, interventions to be most effective. Uh, you've long been an advocate for mm -hmm. public service, and certainly among the student body. Uh, you mentioned before this kind of tension between, you know, do you go into the business world and make a lot of money, or do you go into government and try and make some good happen? Uh, but when you've spoken before about public service, you don't quite think that they're in conflict, or at least mm. they're not mutually mm -hmm. exclusive. What kind of advice would you give to a undergrad here at Harvard or elsewhere um, who's trying to decide on a career who has uh, an interest in public service mm -hmm. but doesn't necessarily know how to balance those? What I'd say to any undergraduate is, where do you feel that you can be most effective in bringing your talents to bear to serve both to create a meaningful life for yourself and make a contribution to society more generally? Because that's what I think makes for a meaningful life. I don't think people end up blissfully happy if all they care about is themselves. People who've come to Harvard have been given the enormous privilege of this education. How do we use it to serve societies and, and purposes beyond ourselves? But you can't put square pegs in round holes. People shouldn't go do things that they don't feel they're suited to or that they don't feel are meaningful because they're not going to be good at it. Mm -hmm. So. I expect our undergraduates to assort themselves across a wide range of fields, but I would hope they would keep this notion of service in mind. And that means that people who go into business initially may have some point in their life where they go into public service. We often see people in government who have worked in a variety of um, aspects of business. Mike Bloomberg gave the commencement address last year. He is such a person. Mm -hmm. So um, a choice is not a permanent choice. There are different phases of a life. He's also um, served through philanthropy through supporting educational institutions, through supporting combating climate change, supporting um, combating gun um, violence. So he has been both a public and a private figure in his life. Mm -hmm. There will be other people, however, who really find that public service in and of itself will be the place that they can contribute most significantly and meaningfully. And I wanna make sure we open those choices in ways that students can identify them. It's often hard to find those paths. There's not that juggernaut of recruiting that happens in the financial services area, for example. Right. And so one of my commitments since becoming president has been to try to expand 
knowledge about where individuals might go. Now, internships during time at Harvard is one way to introduce students to opportunities. Mm -hmm. The public service fair that we had last year for the first time that brought public service employers here. Mm -hmm. Other kinds of support that we can give to students so they can afford to do work while they're at college in the public service realm and find out, do they like it? Do they not like it? Sure. Um, I also think about my own life. I did a program when I was in college. It was called Careers in Social Work. I spent a summer in a placement through that program. And I, I enjoyed it, but I thought I could do contribute more in other realms. And so I decided I'm not going to be a social worker. Trying things out like that and finding where you fit. Something I'm very excited about this year that we have... Um, we're about to launch is the Harvard Teacher Fellows Program. We've seen a lot of press just these past few weeks about the shortage of teachers in the United States. Mm -hmm. And how can we bring really talented people who've in the past number of years shown a certain amount of interest in Teach for America and other teacher residency programs. How can we use the resources of the Graduate School of Education here at Harvard, of Harvard College, to provide a clear pathway and an honored pathway for people to move into those kinds of roles? Mm -hmm. So um, validating it, opening up avenues, and supporting students as they wish to pursue these kinds of careers is, I think, very important. From a personal standpoint, obviously, you know, as I've said, you're very committed to public service. Uh, when you stepped into the role as president of Harvard, uh, how did you think about your role as a leader and how you could use that role to encourage public service? Uh, obviously, you mentioned some of the programs that are uh, in existence and coming into existence. Um, but moving a uh, institution like this into having a general awareness or a thinking about, you know, this kind of subject, um, certainly uh, it, it takes some skill and it, it takes concerted effort. How did you approach that? Well, the first thing that struck me, and this came out of my very uh, um, earliest meeting with the undergraduate council. I remember it was in a room in Harvard Hall, and there were probably 30, 35 students there. And they were talking about how they felt they didn't have any choice about what they did, that there were certain honored occupations and certain other occupations that people didn't honor. And one student said specifically, no one ever says it's good to be a teacher. And so that resonated in my mind. And I've thought about, we need to, to affirm these choices. We need to say, these are great choices. These are honorable choices. These are choices that befit and, and in some ways represent the best of what a Harvard student is. Mm -hmm. So part of it is a presidential voice. Permission, um, honor, ha and talking about it, mm -hmm. and, and really making it a highlight of, of a aspiration. So that's one thing. But then what goes behind that in terms of making it possible? And that has been one statistic we learned when I appointed a task force on public service is that it is the highest um, predictive element of an undergraduate experience for a public service career is having done public service as an undergraduate. So how can we strengthen Phillips Brooks? How can we strengthen the presence of public service in the college and um, in the advising systems and in the opportunities students have in the summer? How can we make it possible for students who are on financial aid and need to come up with a summer contribution to enable them to um, take internships and undertake activities that will direct them towards public service careers? Mm -hmm. I established a presidential 
public service fellows program that isn't huge, but it's meant to be a great honor and it's meant to go across the university and to bring students from different schools in contact with one another as they share their experiences in public service, support them for a summer and then continue to have them relate to other people going into public service. Another thing that's happened is as the curriculum has become much more interested in incorporating experiential learning. There are opportunities for public service within the curriculum as well as in the extracurricular realm, and ways to support that and to advance that have been an important part of the agenda as well. President Drew Gilpin Faust, thank you so much for coming on PolicyCast today. Thank you. You can learn more about the Presidential Public Service Fellowship Program on Harvard's website. As always, we'll have a link in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota, photography by Tatiana Johnson. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter 